0: All right, this morning we are going to be in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, not too far of a jump from last week. Last week we were in Genesis 9, this week we are in Genesis 12. A lot has happened since then, Um, but in terms of the overall page to page, it should just be one page over from where we were at last week. we in Genesis 12. Our Pillar Kids question of the week is, Name one of the ways that Jesus gives us belonging. So during the sermon, I'll I'll, uh, talk about three ways that Jesus gives us a sense of belonging or actually gives us belonging. Um, And so if you can just name one of those ways on the kids question of the week. Uh, There's been a term that has come to the rise, come to the forefront in the past few years. Uh, I looked it up and it was actually officially coined in 2005, um, but I feel like I haven't heard it until recently, maybe during COVID time. Uh, and beyond. Uh, It seems to have been coupled with the rise of social media. It's a term called FOMO, aka fear of missing out. It's a worried feeling that you may miss exciting moments or exciting events that other people are experiencing or are going to. It seems that it started from people viewing the social media lives of other people and assuming that everyone else is living this crazy life, this wildlife except for them. And FOMO has actually led to another phenomenon that is uh, growing pretty crazy among Gen Z and Gen Alpha called FOBO, not FUBU, FOBO. Fear of better options. Essentially, people are waiting until the absolute last minute to commit to plans, not because they don't know what the calendar is going to look like, but out of fear that something better is going to come along in the meantime and they'll commit too early and won't be able to get out of it. Now, honestly, they're both kind of laughable. I I struggle, I don't struggle with Fobo, but I do struggle with FOMO myself. Uh, And now, you may laugh at both of those, and and you'd be right, like the terms, they sound silly. But they're they're a real phenomenon. They're a real struggle for people. And I believe that even if you don't necessarily struggle with FOMO, or FOBO, that there is a a fear that you struggle with that is at the heart of both of these silly terms. I think that each of us experience the desire to belong. I think that is at the heart of FOMO and FOBO. We want to belong. We each have a desire to find a place, or a person who knows you all the way through and yet understands you, gets you, and loves you. We want a place where we can just be us and can belong. My guess is also that each of us knows what it feels like to not belong. At some point or another, we know what it feels like to be on the outside. If I asked you to recall a time where you felt lonely, I think pretty quickly you could think of a time where that was the case. You probably know what it feels like to be around people, physically in the presence of other people, and yet not feel seen, not feel heard, not feel known, not feel understood, to feel out of place. Ultimately, to feel like you don't belong. Probably an instance or two where that really stands out in your life. Maybe you're at a party or a hangout or something like that, a social gathering. And you just felt like the only one who was out of place the entire time. For some of you, this may feel like a characterization of your life. You always feel out of place, like like you don't belong. Or posit that we all struggle with some form of feeling out of place. We all struggle with some sort of imposter syndrome, with feeling like we're on the outside, like we're the one who's not supposed to be here. Now, we could attribute it to the rise of social media and feeling like you're missing out, but I think we'll see from our text today that a desire to belong has been ingrained into the human heart. So it's something that we've always struggled with, it's not just social media. But we'll also see that it's through Jesus that humanity can really experience a sense of belonging, of being in the place that you're supposed to be. And so we'll be in a Genesis 12 this morning. Now it's in this scene that we first meet a guy named Abram. At this point he's named Abram. Now eventually we know him as Abraham, and it's hard when we think about Abraham to not immediately think of this great and powerful guy who is the patriarch of Israel. Three major world religions see, them, see him as their patriarch. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And that's what we know him as, and it's true at this point in history, at our time in history, Abraham, as we have known him, is a great and powerful man. But in our text today, in Genesis 12 today, when we encounter him, he's not that. Instead, he's, he's simply a shepherd in Mesopotamia. He's living in a village called Ur, which from what we can gather seems to be pretty stable and prosperous for its time. Then his father decided to move his entire family from Ur to go to the land of Canaan, which is a pretty prominent place in the Bible. But somewhere along the journey, I don't know if they got tired. I don't know if something they found something else that excited them, but they play, came to a place called Haran and they decided to settle there. And... Seems like they lived there for some time, and eventually Abraham's father passed away. So now Abraham is the patriarch of this family. And now we also not only think of him as mighty and powerful, but we think of him him as a man dedicated to Yahweh. It will later say in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what we think of. However, we don't really know if that's the case right now in Genesis 12 when the Lord speaks to him. In Joshua 24.2, Joshua tells Israel that Abraham's dad, Terah, believed in other gods. And that would make sense. The land was a place of other gods reigning. And so there's a possibility that Abraham knew of Yahweh, but he might have just been one in a pantheon of gods for Abraham. And so I tell you all of that background to set the scene. Here we have a man who is a shepherd. He's he's a wealthy one. He's not poor. And he'll tell us later in Genesis 12 that he has a lot of possessions. But he's a man who's kind of been all over the place. He doesn't really have a home, it seems. He's a shepherd who more likely than not, at this point, is not exclusively following Yahweh. And then Yahweh speaks to him. He speaks to him. So that's where we're at today. In Genesis 12, we'll read verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot with him. Lord, we are thankful that your word is relevant to us. Lord, we can read the 12th chapter of the entire Bible. And it is a gold mine of riches of knowledge, of wisdom, Lord, of of not just that, but of showing us you. Jesus, you are in every page of the Bible. It's all pointing towards you. So, Lord, would you help me this morning as we want to know you? We want to know you intimately, Lord, not abstractly, Lord, but we want to live lives that show that we've encountered the risen Jesus. So help us today as we think about finding a place of belonging in you to do so. To find belonging in you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So our uh, series through for Advent is called Great Expectations. And so uh, just as a recap of last week, we've been looking at different covenants that shape the backbone or the storyline of the bible and we've been looking at them and not just not just seeing exactly what it says but also showing how each of the covenants show a deeper human experience that we all have a longing that we all have that jesus fulfills within us and so today in genesis 12 we we see the beginnings of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, the actual Abrahamic Covenant is in Genesis 15, the ceremony where it happens, but it's essentially just a reconfirmation of this in Genesis 12. And we'll we'll see that it shows us what it means for us as we look for a place or a person to which we should belong, where we can find belonging. And so we should see, what is the call of the covenant? What is God actually saying here? What's the promise that God is making here? Well, verse 1 is the call for Abraham. Go. Go to a land that I will show you. It doesn't tell him where he's going. He just says, go to a land that I will show you. Why? Why should I go? It's because God promises that he will create a people from Abraham who will be God's People, Notice the promise is I will make you into a great nation Yahweh will make Abraham into a great nation Now when we think about nation, at least when I think about nation My mind immediately goes to the government It goes to boundary lines It goes towards citizenship Rules, laws, regulations when I think about a place where people can live in order and justice and that, that is true. That is true. In one way or another, essentially, that, that is a nation. That's not the only thing that should come to mind when we think about a nation. Nations aren't just about laws in and of themselves or governing body in and of itself. Instead, those things are means to an end. Nations provide people a common place to live, a common place to play. A common place to work in some loose form of unity, unified around the experience of living with one another in the confines of a community with common rules, a common governing authority, and semi-common experiences. In other words, nations, as best as they possibly can, provide a sense of belonging. And now God is telling Abraham, you're going to be a father of a nation. Going to be the father of a nation. But this nation's different. There are other nations that exist at this time. It's not like this is the first nation to ever exist. But this nation isn't going to be governed by an arbitrary set of rules or laws or regulations. It's not going to find commonality in tangible things like work or family or even particularly land. Instead, this nation will be God's nation. It is the it will be the very people group that God chooses to bless. He will specifically bless this nation from Abraham. The commonality will not be found in arbitrary or tangible things. Instead, the commonality is rooted in God Himself, in Yahweh, who will rule this nation and will bless it. That's what it says in verse three. I will bless those who bless you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, it's in this community that God is promising Abraham where people would experience what it is to truly belong. That's because they won't just belong to each other. Instead, they'll find belonging with the God of the universe together. They'll walk in step with him. He will be present with them. He'll protect them. He'll guide them. He'll know them. And they'll know him. This is something that hasn't really happened since the Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis 3 when uh, Adam and Eve were caught in sin. That they hear the Lord walking in the cool of the day. They were in the presence of the creator and the ruler of the universe. And before sin weren't scared. Much in the same way that I might take Uh, my family out on an evening walk, it seems like they were just going on evening walks with God. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God daily. They experienced truly belonging to God without anything to hide or to be ashamed of. But like it has a habit of doing, sin wrecked it. They were physically kicked out of the garden and were now left on the outside looking in, literally on the outside looking in, not belonging. And that's a sense that's pervaded. It's a sense that's pervaded. We've all wrestled with the feeling like we're on the outside looking in, in some sort of context in our life, in some sort of place. It is a common human experience caused by the sin that has wrecked our world. And now God is telling Abram, your lineage, the people that come from you are going to be the people who aren't on the outside looking in. You're going to be on the inside. You're going, your people are going to be the people who truly know me, who know what it is to love me, and to be loved by me. They'll be my people, and I'll be their God. So when Abram hears this, it's God restoring in a broken world a form of what Adam and Eve had with him in the garden. But again, sin does what sin does, and it wrecks the people of God. It's a pretty quick downfall from Genesis 12. Right away, Abraham, who at this time doesn't even have any kids, says he's 75. He doesn't have any kids. He doesn't trust that God will create a nation from him. It says later on that he believed God and was credited with righteousness, but eventually he's tired of waiting and he takes matters into his own hands he has a kid with a concubine, and God tells him that's not the kid through which the nation will come. And then Ishmael, the kid born of the concubine, is literally left on the outside looking in, not belonging. And then the Lord does provide, and Isaac, the eventual son, is born to Abraham. And he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they're at odds their entire life, and Jacob eventually steals the inheritance from Esau because he feels left out. In that, he leaves Esau on the outside, looking in. Then Jacob goes on to have 12 sons of, of his own. But the second youngest, Joseph, as you guys know the story, is the clear favorite. Because of this, the other brothers hate him and sell him into slavery, and Joseph is on the outside, looking in. But the Lord provides for Joseph, and provides for Jacob's descendants, and they become Israel. They become a large group of people, and they quickly are enslaved by Egypt and are again left on the outside, looking in, not belonging. But again, the Lord provides, and the people of God are led to rescue. God provides Moses, and he leads them out. He's leading them to the land of Canaan. that's promised here. But Israel complains on the first day. And are left to wander in the desert for 40 years. Again, they're on the outside. Literally, on the outside of the land of Canaan. Looking in. I could keep going on and on. Eventually, Israel takes the land that God promised. But they're fractured and they split into two kingdoms. And they're enslaved by other nations. And eventually... As you read through First and Second Chronicles, there's a sense in there. There's a sense of, what are we supposed to do? Where do we look for for rest? Where do we look for belonging? Our, our land is wrecked. We keep fighting with each other. Other nations keep coming in and ransacking us, and then we're enslaved to them. And we just feel like we don't fit. What are we supposed to do? Where do we go? Have you been there? Have you looked for belonging in various ways only to feel like you don't belong at all? Have you gotten married thinking that you'll finally be with someone who accepts everything about you only to find out that you guys actually don't get along with everything? And maybe you don't actually feel fully known. Have you ever started to talk with another person and you feel like you're clicking right away? And then out of nowhere, that person just ghosts you, they're gone. Have you ever been around a group of people who seem like they're all great friends? And you feel like you're on the fringe no matter what you do. Just feel by yourself, you feel alone. Have you ever exhausted yourself trying to measure up to someone's standards only to find that you can never measure up? Have you ever moved to a new place and it feels like you can't fit in no matter where you go? You know that that feeling inside that begins when you feel out of place? When you seem alone? When it seems like no one gets you? It's a lonely place to be. You feel by yourself in in, in the world, and you sink into those feelings more and more. And you're left, like Israel, asking, where do we turn? Where do we go? Where do we belong? Well, it's, it's in a period of silence. A period of Israel really feeling forgotten by God, a period of Israel feeling completely out of place in the world, that Jesus burst onto the scene. And we might expect him to come into the picture with authority, telling everyone that, hey, I'm God, and I'm going to restore Israel to what it's supposed to be. I'm coming back to Genesis 12. I'm, I'm going to make it into that. That's what, that's what Israel expected him to do. That's what they hoped he would do. Instead, he enters the picture in a setting of being on the outside. He's born in a small village. Right after his birth, his family's immediately driven to uh, Egypt. And then when they come back, he's raised in some backwoods town in Israel. In fact, Philip, uh, when asked, or, uh, Philip and Nathaniel are having a conversation. They're talking about it, and the words are said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus' hometown. Can anything good come out of there? His dad is a carpenter. His mom got pregnant when she wasn't married. Now we know it's the Holy Spirit. Not everyone else knows that. He comes in like we might feel out of place. This is important because it shows us the first thing it shows us that Jesus knows us intimately, He knows what it's like to be in our shoes. He was the one on the outside, the one whose family seemed out of place. But not only that, he knows what it's like to face the troubles that we face. We read in Hebrews 4 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is Jesus, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That means that the sin that's hiding That you don't want to tell anyone about? Jesus faced that. And he knows what it's like to endure the temptation. He knows what it's like to endure it all the way without giving in. He's someone that can relate to your experience. That knows what you've been through. He's not like your boss who uh, has somehow become your boss without ever actually doing your job. Who tells you to do hard work without actually having done it himself. He's calling you to do what he himself has done, But not only that, Jesus doesn't just generically understand, yeah, I've been there, done that, I, I, I get that. Instead, he, he knows us individually. He actually knows what's going on in our lives, both on the outside and within. When speaking to the woman at the well in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the woman that she's had multiple husbands, even though he's just met her. In other places, we read that he knows what the disciples are thinking. He's also able to know what the Pharisees are feeling and are thinking within. In response to it. In that sense, we know that Jesus knows us. He knows what's going on within us. Even now, he's all-knowing. Right now, in this moment, he knows what's going on within your head, within your heart. He knows what it is to be us. He knows the struggles that we're facing. But he's not cold. The fact that he not only knows what's going on in us, but has been through it as well, means that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one that says, I get you. I understand you. I know what it is to be you, and I'm, I'm here for you. Jesus is the person to which we belong. And that leads us to our second thing, which is not only that, but he's the person who loves us beyond measure, despite our warts and despite our nastiness. Have you ever had a friend and then you messed up, screwed up in some way, and they just stopped being your friend because of it? Maybe they sent sent you a text to say they were done being your friend. Maybe they just phased out of your life without saying anything. It's a terrible feeling. It's a feeling that will leave you either not wanting to ever make friends again, or feel like you're constantly walking on eggshells. A friend is only as much of a friend as they can take on all of you, warts and all. And that's Jesus. When Jesus began his his public ministry, he didn't trumpet onto the scene, tell everyone that he's a god, that he's God establish his authority, and kick out those who are terrible. Instead, we find him inviting people who feel out of place, like they don't belong. Sinners, tax collectors, lepers, essentially the outcasts of society. He's inviting them to himself. He's moving from a place of authority. He's not trying to trying to shed off authority. He's moving from a place of authority. But he he isn't using that authority to to stamp down on those who are out of place. Instead, he he gives them a seat at the table. He gives them the dignity they crave and provides an ear to listen to them. His life is characterized by loving those on the outside. Jesus takes them in and loves them. He he notices them, but he doesn't just notice them. he, He goes into their places. He doesn't invite them into the synagogue where it might be safe for his reputation. Hey, come listen to me. Instead, he's going into their homes and eating at their tables. And that matters for us. That matters for us because we are people with warts. And you know, we can get trapped to thinking that we're pretty good people. If we compare ourselves to others, if we compare ourselves to the world, it can seem like it's easy to say, yeah, I'm not that guy, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't know about you, but the more and more that I examine my life, that I step back and I look at moment by moment, the more and more I, r- I realize how nasty I actually am. Now, I'd, I'd hate to be on the Truman Show. Now, all of laziness, pride, selfishness, gluttony, frustrations and annoyances, impatience, lack of gentleness, lack of kindness, and on and on and on would be on full display for everyone to see. The thing is, Jesus has access to our life like that. Jesus sees each and every moment with us, and he doesn't sit there shaking his head. He doesn't laugh at my struggle for his own enjoyment or even chastise me for my failures. Instead, he, he loves me. He loves us. In John 6, Jesus tells us that he will never cast out those who come to him. We read in Hebrews that he he won't forsake us. There's no qualifier added or a clause or two. In John 6, it's genuinely just just come to him. And he won't cast you out. Not when you first become a Christian and not, not now that you are a Christian. Jesus knows everything that you have done wrong, are currently doing wrong, and will do wrong. And knew that when you became a Christian. So when you come to him, don't think this is a missed three times and you're out situation. Jesus instead continues to respond with love in the middle of all of our nastiness. And that means that when you watch that video. And you feel like you can't be around anyone because of how gross you feel. Jesus is there to love you. That means that when you yell at your kids or your spouse and you feel ostracized from the family or from other people because of that ugly moment, Jesus is there to love you. That means that when you have a moment of being super prideful and bragging about yourself and afterwards you just feel weird, Jesus is there to love you. That means that when you lie to cover something up, when you feel convicted over it, gross, Jesus is there to love you. When you gossip about someone or slander someone and you feel horrible, like nobody can understand or nobody can take you in, Jesus is there to love you. There is nothing that you can do to push Jesus away. He is always there with open arms. He's not the friend who cuts you out of their life because you screwed up. There is no cancel culture with Jesus. Instead, he he beckons us to come closer and to find love, mercy, and grace with him. And so we see that Jesus invites us in. He knows us intimately. Jesus loves us fully. And then finally, we see that Jesus restores our relationship with God. Jesus restores our relationship with God. And yes, I mean that in that he's taken on our sin and that we can now be clean and in right relationship with God, but I also mean more than that. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus has given us the right to be adopted by God. We are called sons and daughters of God. And think about what that means for a moment. I find myself often coming to God like a kid in an orphanage trying to put on my best face, covering up all of my mistakes, just wanting to be accepted and loved, wanting to find a home. But the thing is, is if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're already home. You're already a son or a daughter of God. We don't have to come in an effort to be loved. Instead, we come from a place of already being loved. Think about how honest your kids are with you sometimes, probably maybe more so than you would like for them to be. That's the kind of relationship Jesus has given us with the Father. We get to come to him and tell him everything. And much in the same way that you don't shun your kids or stop loving your kids for their mistakes, the Father doesn't stop loving you when you mess up. We now have a Father who loves us at all times and with whom we can be comfortable and open and honest with. And now I know this may not be the case for everyone, but Growing up for me, home is where I felt most comfortable. I felt like I could be goofy and weird and that I would still be loved. It was a place where I felt like I belonged, like I was understood. And that's how it is now that Jesus has given us the right to be adopted. We belong with God, the one who who knows us, and He lets us be us. Now, he, He gives us the power to overcome sin. It's not an excuse to just continue to sin, but he is there to see each part of us and continues to love us. God celebrates the things that make you uniquely you. He created you that way and now empowers you to use that for his glory and for the good of others. The quirks that you hide, God sees his things to be celebrated. And so we see in Jesus that he is the picture of belonging he is the fulfillment of this promise that a great nation will come about he's the one through whom blessing will come to the nations it's out of this relationship with Jesus him knowing us intimately him loving us fully and inviting us to know God as father that we can now live as a family of God you see it's It's through the church that the love of God, and thus our sense of belonging to God, is made tangible through the relationships that we experience. I'll say it in a simpler way. We experience what it is to truly belong through relationships with people that emulate the love of Jesus to us. We experience what it is to truly belong through relationships with people That emulate the love of Jesus to us. Now I know. Reality. This doesn't always play out like it should. Church hurt is a real thing. People are genuinely affected. Are genuinely hurt by people who are genuinely in the wrong. Sin still affects each and every one of us. And it's it's going to affect our relationships. But the church is what God has created to give each of us a sense of belonging. It's in Jesus where we find true rest, true belonging. And it's out of the overflow of this love that we invite each other to belong. And where we tangibly experience belonging ourselves. And so quickly, here's three ways that the church provides a space for people to belong. Number one, it's a place where people can be themselves and be loved. Much in the same way that Jesus loves us over and over and over, no matter our quirks, the particular sins we struggle with, or the things that we hide, we are to love one another without limits. The church is supposed to be like home. It's where you're supposed to be able to come in. Warts, goofiness, weirdness, all of it. It's a place where you can take off the mask and be yourself. It's a place where we can be weird, where we can be sad, where we can be quirky, where we can bring everything to the table and be loved, baggage and all. And so it's a place where people can be themselves and be loved. It's also a place where people can confess sin and be met with grace. Because it's a place where people can be themselves and be loved, it's also a place where people should be able to show everything that they've got. Sin, warts, all of it. and Be met with grace not judgment or gossip. We're called to confess our sins to one another and to bear one another's burdens, and that can't happen if people don't feel comfortable with sharing their struggles and with confessing their sins and with opening up their lives to an almost uncomfortable point. The church is to express the love that Jesus has expressed to us. This should be a place where we can tell others about everything that we've got going on about ourselves and be encouraged to find love and grace in Jesus. It's to be a place where we freely confess our sins, expecting others to jump in and help, not to hurt. It's a place where we don't shun the people who are openly struggling with sin. It's a place where we go quickly to these people and we show them love and we show them grace and mercy. And so the church is supposed to be a, people where, a place where people can be themselves and be loved. It's supposed to be a place where people can confess sin and be met with grace. And it's also a place that is bound together by something stronger than the individuals themselves. Thinking about a nation and a whole group of people that are together and are bound together. We have something stronger than any nation before. I mean, there are different people that unite that find belonging in various things. Go to a football game. You'll find a bunch of people who feel like they belong at that place. Go into any country and you might find a people that feel like they belong as citizens. But wait until controversy breaks out. Wait until the quarterback goes down or a law is passed. And they start losing and people begin to argue with one another. I'm talking about football. It breaks down quickly. But in the church... The supernatural power of God is working within each and every one of us. That means that if we hit a rough, past, a rough patch, we don't go our separate ways. We're not immediately supposed to break down in bitterness or in arguing, but it means that we can remain together. Loving one another through the broken relationships, through the frustrations and anger, because the Spirit of God is within each of us and is working within us to supernaturally help us to love one another And to invite each other into the body. And so my hope and prayer today is this. I pray that you find a place of belonging in Jesus. It's what Israel craved. They wanted to belong to the Lord. They wanted to be a nation where they could find a place of rest and belonging. Jesus is that. If you're a Christian, I encourage you today to remember your identity in Christ. You are an adopted son or daughter. He's not displeased with you. Instead, he knows you, loves you, and invites you to himself to experience grace and love. This promise from thousands of years ago has come true for you. A place of belonging is not found in a place or a thing. It's found in Jesus. And if you're you're not a Christian my hope is that you find belonging in Christ. I don't know what life situation you're in or what family situation you're in. I don't know how satisfied you are with your life or how dissatisfied you are with your life. No matter where you are at, I encourage you to go to Jesus with everything laid out before him, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's inviting you to bring that to him and to find rest, to find belonging. With him. And then he gives us a love like you've never experienced before. All he asks is that you turn from your previous life. And that you trust in him. That you trust that he died and came back to life. So that your sin could be removed. And so that you could be adopted by God. He's there for you with arms open wide. Waiting to show you a love that you need. Lord, we are grateful this morning. Jesus, we're grateful that you are the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants. Lord, as we read about these promises that seem um, so far out of reach, they seem impossible. As we read the Old Testament and we flip through and we see people struggling to live out the covenants that are there or people who want to belong to you, but for some reason just keep getting in their own way, Lord. We can be left wondering, what are we supposed to do? Because we're in the same way. We're in the same boat. Trying to figure out where we belong all the time, Lord. Feeling out of place. Lord, it is in you that we find our place, that we find rest, that we find belonging, a place where we can be ourselves. Lord, help us to continue to remember our identity as sons and daughters people who know you. Lord, help us to remember that you know us intimately. Lord, may we live out of that identity. Lord, knowing that you give us a sense of belonging. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We praise you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.